Welcome to Much More Than the Law, a production of the law firm of Much Shellist. I'm your host, Ed Shapiro. On Much More Than the Law, we will introduce you to, uh, among other things, the heartbeat of our firm. It's people. We'll discuss developments in the law. We will get to know some of our clients and community partners. Basically, our goal is to inform, educate, and inspire, maybe share a few laughs along the way. And we really look forward to sharing this journey with all of you. Our guest today is Neil Posner, chair of our Policyholders Insurance Coverage Group. Neil is also very involved in risk management and legal ethics is also our resident and very serious classical pianist. We'll get into that a little later. Neil, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Absolutely. You know, we have a lot to talk about in terms of current legal issues that you are dealing with for our clients, the impact of the pandemic on insurance coverage law. We'll get to that a little bit later. But before we do, let's find out a little bit more about your personal story. Now, I know this because we share the same birthplace, that you are originally from New York City, correct? Correct. So talk a little bit about what it was like growing up in New York back in the day. Well, back in the day, it was it was great. I mean, I started out in Manhattan. That's where I was born and spent the first you know five years on uh, 72nd Street, just a block west of the entrance to Central Park. And, you know, for a small kid, that was paradise. Was Gray's Papaya? in existence at the time on 72nd Street on the West Side? I think it was, but I was not aware of it. I, <laughs> all, I, all I really cared about was the park and, you know, whether I could get some ice cream. When my sister came along, the, you know, our tiny apartment became too small for us. You know, my parents decided that we needed more space. So we moved to Queens. And that's where I grew up, really, starting from first grade through high school. And, you know, and that was obviously less, you know, less urban at the time. But it still had a lot of advantages, which was, you know, plenty of parks and plenty of kids to run around with. You know, in that sense, it was fun. And all the schools that I went to really had very strong music programs. And since that was what I cared about most of all, it was a a real blessing for me. You are a serious classical pianist, have done many, many concerts over the course of many, many years. So that interest started as a kid. You know, growing up in New York City, especially at the time when, it, you know, when parents were less, <laughs> they weren't as diligent, you know, watching their kids 24-7, you know, by the time I was of a certain age, certainly by the time I was 10 or 12 or 13, you know, I could just like go on the bus and take the subway into Manhattan anytime I wanted, you know, get some spending money and go and I could go to all the museums that I wanted, you know, go to concerts. And of course, you know, all the things that any kid that was interested in music, it was all there. It was a great place to grow up for somebody like me, because I was really into classical music, and I was really into musical theater. I mean, by the time I was in high school, I was already performing. I auditioned for and got into the All City Orchestra. By the time I had graduated from high school, I had already performed Carnegie Hall. Mind you, I was in back of the clarinet section, but still it was Carnegie Hall. And with the American Symphony Orchestra. And it was just it was just an extraordinary place to grow up if those were the kinds of things that you were into. Which is a wonderful thing, and it's a wonderful place to grow up. And would I be correct that you were also into things like comic books and Mad Magazine and Alfred E. Newman, and, or would that be a reach? No, it would be 100% correct. I was all of those things. Loved comic books, loved Mad Magazine, all of that stuff. 
you know, and the public school system at the time was also pretty rich in terms of, you know, all sorts of learning opportunities. You know, the math and science programs were good and the foreign language programs were pretty good. For a kid who was as insatiably curious as I was, and still am, frankly, which is why being a lawyer is such a cool thing to do, because you get to stick your nose into everybody's business. It was a very good place and a very good time to grow up. You know, it expanded my horizons tremendously. Now, at some point, you moved from high school to college. Mm -hmm. Now, did you study music in college? Were you pressured in any way to study something that you could fall back on? How did it work for you moving from high school to college and pursuing your interests and your passions? I was totally pressured to go into something other than music, to have something to fall back on. I like to think of my parents as people who during the day would say, you can grow up to be anything you want, but would come into my bedroom at night, whisper into my ear, be a heart surgeon, be a heart surgeon, right? <laughs> and that I think actually was the way it was. So, you know, I went to college and I was expected to be pre-med, of course, right? But I was really indifferent to all of those core subjects, the only subjects I really, really cared about were the music courses. And although I didn't technically major in music, I majored in psychology, and that was my, what my degree was in, I took the bare minimum uh, number of courses that I needed to in my major in order to graduate. I really was, functionally, I was a music major. I went to NYU. So being a music student in New York City gave me incredible opportunities to perform. I became the accompanist for all the, for the university's choirs. I became the Companies for the artists in residence in the opera department and accompanied all of his students, performed at all the really great stages. Plus, there were all these theater opportunities. So by the time I was a junior or senior in college, I was spending very, very little time in school. And most of my time, you know, rehearsing musicals, directing musicals off Broadway, I was making a full-time pretty good living at the time. So college started to become sort of irrelevant to me, although I did finish college. Although I'm also fond of saying that my diploma from New York University is evidence that I graduated from New York University, but it's not evidence necessarily that I'm an educated man. That came much later. Once again, showing the humility that is very important in any any person and, and lawyer in particular to have. So going back, were there people in your family who were lawyers? I'm curious about the moment, the decision, the thought process. Did law school ever cross your mind while you were playing at Carnegie Hall and other places? Help us understand sort of that that transition into, and being a lawyer could be something that I could pursue. I thought about it very briefly while I was in college, but once I started to work full-time as a musician, even in college, the thought was fleeting, frankly. And I didn't really start thinking about it again until I had already been in the music business in Los Angeles. After college, I knocked around the New York music scene for a while and then left, I left for LA to try to make my inroads into the recording studios you know, doing film soundtracks and that sort of thing, which I actually started to do. And it was all very exciting and all very new and the pay was good and, and all of that sort of thing. But I didn't really start thinking about the law as something that I might want to do until I had already been in the music business, frankly, a pretty long time, figuring 20 when I really got into it full time. By the time I was 30, 
I was already starting to burn out a little bit on the freelance studio musician thing in Los Angeles. And it was about then that I started a business, a post-production recording studio, because I really started to feel nudgy about the freelance musician's life. And I wanted to get on the other side of the microphone and see if I could do something there. And that actually turned out to be a good thing. But one of the things that I noticed after a few years with this fledgling you know, ground floor business, which really did take off and it was quite successful, was that I was really nothing more than a piano player with a good idea for a business, but I didn't really know how to run it, yeah, how to make it grow. I mean, I would pull a monthly financial statement, but I didn't really know how to use it to build the business, to grow it, to expand it, how to make strategic decisions you know, based on the financial information, like where my partners and I should be deploying our resources, limited though they were. So, you know, there was a night and weekend program at UCLA for people kind of like me, entrepreneurs, to learn about accounting and finance and that sort of thing. A lot of people in that program really were doing it because they wanted to sit for the CPA exam. I was doing it just because I really wanted to understand what I was doing day in and day out. One of the required classes in that program was a class called business law. And I just found myself very attracted to it. And the other thing that happened during the course of my time in the business, particularly in running the recording studio, was that a lot of my clients were lawyers. And they were like making records, they were in bands, they were writing songs on the side. They would come to the studio to do post-production work on their stuff. And they would always ask me, can you get me a record deal? And tell me about the music business. And as I became more and more friendly with them, I started to ask them questions about what they were doing. And I just found myself increasingly interested and fascinated by what they were doing as lawyers, just as much as they were fascinated by what I was doing in the music business. And I just found myself feeling like, you know, this might be the next chapter for me. And as it turns out, it was. It's a fascinating story, this sort of intersection between music, the creative arts, and law, and how what you learned coming out of college as a psychology major, at least that's what it said on the diploma from NYU, right? and then going into the music business, being a studio musician, then opening up your own business, and then this decision to go to law school and become a lawyer. And I want to talk a little bit more about how that all came together for you and how it influences how you practice today, how you understand clients' businesses, understand client challenges, and how you feel it has helped you in counseling clients in the work that you do. Both being a musician and running a business were they're just very useful. To me, you know, I, I don't know that they would be useful to everybody who, who has a career or two before going to law school, but I think so. The world of music, there's a lot of, shall we say, uncertainty in music. And I don't mean in terms of whether you can make a living or not. There's not a lot of information on sheet music, on the paper, right? There's how high, how low, how fast, how slow, how loud, how soft, right? How long do you hold the note? There's not a lot of information there. And yet, we're expected to figure it out. It requires a significant amount of analysis. And what did the composer mean? Why did he or she put that rest there? 
why does the phrase end on that note instead of the note before it or after it? And that's kind of a lot of what we do, you know, in the law. We have to figure out, you know, we have all these legal principles that we have to apply to the facts at hand, but it's never really black and white. You have to do the analysis. Well, we basically know what the rules of contract formation are, just to use an example, right? But you have to apply those rules to the facts at hand. Did these parties really form a contract? Did they really have a meeting of the mind? Supposing that it's it's not necessarily all there in front of you. How do you figure it out? In reading documents leading up to the formation of a business, what did they have in mind? How do you get there? All of that sort of very technical, legal, analytical stuff feels very familiar to somebody who has grappled with classical music scores. And then, of course, having started a business and run a business and then eventually sold a business and during the course of it all, having been involved in litigation and all of that stuff, being on the client side of the attorney-client relationship, that's just very informative. And I'm very fond of saying to clients pretty often, it's like, you know, I used to be you. I used to be on your side of this relationship. I used to be the guy who got the bill. And I actually think I know what this is like. And I think it helps break the ice. I think it helps clients feel like, yeah, you know, yeah, he's a lawyer. And, you know, lawyers are, you know, nerdy and difficult and whatever non-lawyers think of us. But I think that it helps them to feel like, yeah, but he's been there. Neil's been there. And I have. I think it's very useful to anybody who actually asks me, you know, gee, should I go to law school? Well, not right out of college, I'm often fond of saying. Take some time, do something. Get out there, start a business, take a job, do something. Because law school itself is so abstract. It really helps to, to be able to read the cases and sit through the lectures and do the Socratic back and forth if you have some, some sense of what it's really like out in the world. Because what we do as lawyers is take the chaos of the world and try to filter it through an analytical system that helps us find remedies for our clients. And knowing what clients go through, what their lives are really like, that's just really helpful. It's fascinating. And I think it's a huge advantage to have that type of experience, right? To bring to the table, to bring to a problem, to try to solve it. But you use the word chaos. Certainly there is a lot of chaos in the law, disruption, or there certainly yeah. can be. But I'm curious, what was it either in law school or out of law school that drew you to this very, very specialized, technical, and oftentimes chaotic for the client who has a problem that implicates insurance? What drew you to this particular area of practice, the, the insurance coverage practice, a particularly policyholder side practice. We're very fortunate in Mutchellis. We have people like yourself and Jason Rosenthal and a number of others who are very skilled in this area. But what was it for you that brought you to this, uh, this practice? So that's a good story. So when I got out of law school, my first job was at Mayor Brown Platt in the tax litigation department. You know, all the cases that we were doing were huge. I mean, you would read about them, you know, in the Wall Street Journal. I mean, it was an amazing place to start a legal career. Now, the very first case I worked on, I think the amount of controversy between the taxpayer and the Internal Revenue Service was over a billion dollars. So, I mean, these were big cases. But it also meant that at every case, they would throw a lot of bodies at it. 
And the number of layers between me at the bottom, you know, first year associate level, and the partners that were really running these cases, there were just a lot of layers. It came obvious to me that it was going to take forever, if ever, I was going to be in partner with the corner office with the client directly, where I'd be really either running a matter or counseling a client. And I was feeling like I really want to do that. It didn't matter to me that much that I do it as a tax lawyer. I just wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to counsel clients. And so as anybody who has worked at a big firm knows, once you're in your second or third year of practice, the headhunters start to call. So I would get them. And most of the headhunters were calling about other jobs that were pretty similar to what I already had. So there wasn't a lot of appeal there. But one day a headhunter called and was pretty blunt and said, you know, I don't actually have anything for you. I just want to know if you want to talk. That had a certain amount of appeal to me. So yeah, I set up a coffee meeting with him and we chatted for a long time. And he said to me, do you have any interest in directors and officers law? And I said, hell yes. (laughs) I could totally relate to that. And he said, well, I have an opportunity here. There's a law firm that has a very, very small insurance coverage practice focusing on directors and officers' liability. Would you be interested in talking to them? And I said, yes. So I went and I talked to them and I came away. They only represented policyholders. And it was very small, a full-time equity partner and a part-time income partner that are working on it. So they really needed an associate. And they really needed an associate who was willing to throw himself in full-time on this. And I just came away from that meeting saying, I want to be them. I just want to do that. It was obvious to me that I would be working with clients right away in a very direct way. It did not occur to me at the time how difficult the transition would be because I was now already a third-year associate, very, very deep into federal tax law. and no concept initially how difficult it was going to be to make the transition from such a, a single body of law that was purely federal into a body of law that is state law, right? The law of insurance is different in all 51 U.S. jurisdictions and how difficult it was going to be to transition into it. And it took several months of struggling in order to, before it all started to click into place, sort of like when you really grab a Rubik's Cube and it takes a long time before you finally figure out the trick and you can start to solve the cube in a few minutes. It took months before that happened. But once it started to happen, there was something very magical about it. And the thing that I discovered was these clients really need us. You know, the work, it's not seasonal. It's not cyclical. You know, no business, frankly, no individual out there that doesn't have insurance, that doesn't from time to time have a loss or a claim, and that they run into trouble with their insurance company. And it just dawned on me that this was going to be a really good thing to do. And it also did not escape my notice that most lawyers that I knew did not like insurance law. They don't like reading insurance policies. They, don't, they just don't like it. They were just thrilled to bits that there was somebody uh, at the firm that they could just like dump a 200-page general liability policy on, <laughs> you know, on his desk and say, yeah, I'll take care of it. And the rest is history, really. You talk about this interesting transition from tax law into insurance coverage policyholder side. What we know is that none of us succeeds on our own. We don't do it by ourselves. We need others to teach us, help us, mentor us, sponsor us. And for you in this transition into insurance coverage practice, 
Were there people who took you under their wing, helped you navigate this area in a way that was helpful to you? Absolutely. The chair of that little practice group, when I joined it, one of the smartest people I had ever met, wasn't necessarily a gifted teacher by design, but certainly was in fact. He sat in her office long enough and watched her tear apart a policy and how to analyze it. And the other income partner on the team who would do the same thing. I just remember sitting next to him on a plane, going to some conference or something and watched him analyze the policy on his food tray, right? On the flight. And a lot of it was by osmosis, if you will, and watching them. There were two things that really accelerated the process. One was when we brought in another associate and she and I basically became each other's teachers because neither one of us feared the other. You don't really want to look stupid in front of the person that hired you, right? Having another associate who was learning the same stuff at the same time that I was. So that was really helpful. And the other thing that helped was that the two of us had an opportunity to teach insurance law at Chicago Kent School of Law as adjuncts. And we decided to team teach. It was the best learning experience. Because if you're going to teach a class in law school, you really have to bone up on it. I mean, I think I I clocked that for every hour of class time, I was putting in like four or five hours of prep time. Teaching a law school class is one of the best ways to learn the subject. One more thing that really helped was that other lawyers at the firm started to figure out that I was in the insurance group. And knowing that the insurance group was primarily focused on directors and officers liability and some of the other more esoteric forms of management liability, they didn't really care. They just needed somebody who could like tear apart a property policy or a general liability policy or something else. And I was willing to do it. And because I was already teaching this stuff, it was an opportunity to, as they say, watch one, do one, teach one. And it totally accelerated the process. So by the time I was there, a year, I was getting very, very comfortable in this new practice area for me and just loved it. And then the other thing about it was that I realized also that insurance coverage was so closely related to risk management. I saw it as an opportunity, not just to help them when an insurance claim is going south and they need to sue their insurance company or their insurance company is suing them, but there was an opportunity to work with them to get their risk profile really well-defined so that we can look at all of their policies and procedures and really make sure that the insurance that they were buying really was a good fit for the risk profile. And that gave me an opportunity to do real counseling as opposed to just doing litigation and dispute resolution. That was just a very rewarding thing. And what a great lesson, the value of collaboration. We talk about that a lot in our firm as part of our culture and collaboration and what that means for each lawyer and each practice group and how we can service clients in an optimal way and without fear, right? You you and your colleague were both learning at the same time, which was good for each of you, without any fear of anything really. So you were free to learn. And then that opportunity to teach, extremely valuable, not only because of what you described and that it keeps you on your toes, but you also get that unique opportunity to work with and actually learn from the next generation of attorneys that are coming through, which I think is a tremendous, tremendous opportunity 
we can get sort of mired in our own little bubble in terms of what we do. But you get some great questions in in law school classes on issues sometimes that you may not actually have thought about. And it forces you to stay on top of things, uh, be creative, and also to get the question uh, that you don't have the answer to and to teach the next generation of lawyers that that's okay. Our job is to find what the answers are, to create options around that. And actually, even someone who has been practicing for a while may not have the answer right off the top of her head in that moment. And it's part of what we do as lawyers. We have to figure it out. And I think that's a a valuable, valuable lesson to the next generation. I completely agree. Of course, we're all seeing it now because the pandemic has created so many legal issues that we didn't have to confront before. You know, in some cases, we have to find answers by analogizing or extrapolating from other legal concepts and apply them to the world that we're living in now. And in some cases, we just have to go to court and create law or go to state legislatures and say, we need a law that deals with this, that answers this question. From the point of view of clients are justifiably anxious about all of this stuff. From the point of view of lawyers, we have an opportunity to solve these problems while simultaneously finding ways to protect them from the, this range of perils out there. I mean, we could go on and on about the legal challenges that the pandemic have created. What are you seeing? How are you counseling clients? What are the greatest challenges that people are calling you with during this most difficult time? A lot of clients are suffering financially. Those clients that carry property insurance are hoping that their property policies can help them out, right? You know, what can I say? You know, it's time to time to start sounding like a lawyer, and I apologize for that. Property policy generally pays in case a peril comes along and it damages your building, and they'll pay for the repair or replacement of the damaged property. But it also covers you for, you know, loss of income while the property is being repaired or rebuilt. So a lot of clients are saying, well, you know, I'm not earning any income or my income has dropped a lot because of the pandemic. You know, does my property policy cover that? And there have been thousands of lawsuits about this now out there in the world. And the insurance industry is arguing, well, if you can't show that you have physical damage to your property, well, then you're not covered for loss of business income. And we're saying, well, wait a second, this is a virus. It's everywhere, right? Of course, it's damaging my property just because you can't see it, just because it's microscopic doesn't mean that it isn't damaging my property. And it's certainly impairing my use of the property. And that's also covered, isn't it? The courts are somewhat overwhelmed with these cases. And needless to say, the insurance industry is looking upon these cases with a certain amount of horror, because if the courts start finding for the policyholders, these insurance companies are maybe looking at sizable losses. But the courts are also looking at what, you know, the reasonable expectations of what the policyholders were. And unless a policy has an explicit exclusion for viruses, and many of them do, but not all of them, some courts are allowing some of these cases to go forward. These cases, which are all, by the way, sort of like in the trial court stage, are going to start going up to the, or the appeals courts stages very, very soon. And I think there's going to be a lot of law on this. In the meantime, state legislatures are starting to grapple with this, trying to pass laws that mandate that losses from a pandemic should be covered by insurance. 
So there's going to be uh, there's going to be a lot of stuff out there. We're counseling clients. Let's not wait. If you have a loss, let's get a claim in because a lot of insurance policies have very short claims periods. So if you have a loss, if you're going to sue us, you have to sue us within a year, something like that. One of the things we were canceling clients on is, look, let's not wait. Let's get the claim into the insurance company. Let's act. If we lose, you know, that's one thing. We don't want to lose an opportunity just because we, we waited. The other thing that we're canceling clients on is keep track of the money. Let's be very clear, not just money. Let's be clear about dates because some policies will only pay if you are shut down completely, but not pay if you're shut down partially. We need to be careful about that. Record keeping is very important. The other big area is the area, you know, in labor and employment, because a lot of companies have, well, they have workers, they're showing up, they have to show up, you know, how do we protect them? You know, what are the OSHA requirements? Do our workers comp policies pay for employee losses if they come down with the virus. And again, the law is evolving. So we're staying on top of this and we're counseling clients very carefully. A lot of clients now are starting to ask questions, well, can we insist that employees get vaccinated before they come back to work? And the law is very unclear about this right now. Where it's mandated by government, as it is in some cases, in some occupations, the answer certainly is yes. But there's not great clarity in the law as far as whether you can require it. Require it as long as you allow for certain exceptions, like for religious reasons, or somebody brings a note and says, my doctor says that I have a, a certain condition and, I, and that's contraindicated for the vaccine. So there's just so much going on. Your area in which you practice really touches every other area. You mentioned labor employment, obviously litigation. If you're talking about corporate transactions or real estate transactions. There potentially are insurance-related issues. So it really is one of the areas that, that just touches every other practice group. Obviously, I know from personal experience, I mean, you, you're collaborating with, with all of those groups. I admit it, it's fun. I get to work with everybody in the firm. When the, when the corporate group is uh, representing a client that's buying or selling a company, I get called in because uh, part of the due diligence process involves an analysis of the seller's risk profile and their insurance coverage and their loss history. I'm counseling clients that are, after being shut down for a year, are planning on reopening this, this spring and summer. And are there changes to their insurance policies that weren't there before? Right now, insurance companies are, you know, throwing communicable disease exclusions at companies, you know, onto their renewal policies. And we have to analyze those to say, no, that's just is not going to work for us, either because that'll leave us with a tremendous uninsured exposure or because it'll violate a loan covenant. I mean, there's so many, there's so many angles here. I mean, the shorthand answer here is I guess I'm never bored. You've been involved in a number of organizations outside of practicing law. I mean, you're obviously uh, involved in a number of legal organizations, but I know that you are involved in a number of nonprofits. Talk a little bit about some of the nonprofit work that you do, what motivates you to do that work, and what the act of giving to others has meant to you in your professional career. Years ago, I remember there was a couple of incidents earlier in my life. One was when I was like in my early 20s and I was doing the road trip from leaving New York to move to California, do the music business thing. It was a very circuitous route. You know, I took a, like a month to do this. And it was early in January. I was in, 
sort of camping out in Death Valley, and which is the right time of year to do that. You do not go to Death Valley in August. <laughs> and I have to notice that um, the gas gauge on my car was very low. But I also knew that the sole gas station <laughs> at Furnace Creek in Death Valley, the, the gas was really expensive. So I thought, oh, well, I'm not going to do that. So I had a roadmap that indicated which towns had services like food and gas. So I saw that just outside the just outside the national park, there was an intersection, and it indicated that there was a gas station there. And I said, "Great, I'll get gas there. It's got to be less expensive." So I drive out of the park. Now, what I didn't realize was that to do that, it was a very long climb in elevation, which meant that I was <laughs> using up more more gas as it was. And by the time I got up there, I'm really driving on fumes. And I look at the gas station and it is closed. It's not just closed like for lunch. It's really closed. It's, it's defunct. And there's nothing else around. So I basically put the car in neutral and coast down the hill to the nearest town, which was basically a a combination general store and post office and very little else. So I parked the car and I, you know, go into the general store and I said, I'm looking for gas. Well, you know, my, uh, my husband uh, has a, has his own gas tank, but he's out, you know, he's, uh, he's out ranching someplace and I don't know when he's going to be back. And then a guy comes in, sort of like strolls into the, to the general store, you know, who says, you know, hey, Mabel, uh, any mail for me yet? And she says, you were in here earlier today. You know there's no mail yet, you know, that kind of thing. And it was obvious that he was only there because he just wanted to know who just rolled into town with New York license plates, right? And in this very dusty burg. So he asked me what, what I was doing there. And I told him, well, you know, actually, I'm running out of gas. And I just, I just need to buy some gas from somebody. And he said, well, I got gas. Follow me. And I, you know, I follow him in my car. And he's in, in his truck. And he lives like in a a trailer. So, you know, he invites me in. He's, he's like, has one arm, his wife is in a wheelchair, but nevertheless, they know they make coffee and they put out cookies and, you know, and it was a visit. It was just a visit. They just didn't get any visitors. And they told me their life story and how they wound up there. And, and I must've been there for like an hour. Finally, he says to his wife, oh, I guess, dear, you know, we got to get this young man on his way. So come on outside. I'll, you know, get you some gas. So he starts pumping gas from his private gas tank, right? And he basically fills up my tank. And I don't know what the price of gas was in those days, but you know, it was certainly a lot cheaper than it is now, but still it was a lot of money. So I reach into my pocket and I pull out like, you know, what I thought he would I thought he had given me like ten dollars worth of gas, which would probably be like thirty dollars today, right? Maybe even more. And he waves it off. And this was obviously a man who lived on a very, very limited income. This is a man who had no money. And he waves off the money and he says, just pass it forward. And it changed my life. And every time I have an opportunity to, you know, to do something, you know, that helps a not-for-profit organization, you know, I take the opportunity. The other, the other situation arose out of a personal tragedy in our family, the details of which I won't go into, other than to say that we needed, we needed some illegal help to deal with the ethics committee at the hospital that was involved in, in, involved in the case, in our case. And I approached a friend of mine who was uh, an associate or a junior partner at a very important law firm in Los Angeles, and he got somebody involved who was their, basically their ethics expert their medical ethics expert. And he just took care of the problem. And it resolved. It was absolutely resolved, favorably. 
I called up my, you know, my friend. I thanked him profusely. And I said, you know, make sure you send me a bill. And he said, oh, there will be no bill. And I was not a lawyer yet, but it was within a year that I started law school. And I knew that I knew back then that I had to make a commitment, you know, to give back. The two beautiful stories and really appreciate you sharing them. Many of us have been fortunate enough to have had others help us in very difficult times. And, you know, the privilege of being able to pay that forward as the gentleman that you met asked you to do is just such a wonderful thing and a wonderful opportunity and privilege to be to be actually able to do. So you become a lawyer, you specialize in a practice, you get experience, and that leads you to Children's Oncology Services, right? Yeah. That leads you to uh, Jewish Child and Family Services. Right. Uh, Children's Oncology Services operates, they, they run a series of camps and other recreational activities for children with cancer. And they have about nine, nine or 10 programs in all. So there's like, you know, a day camp for kids with cancer, a summer camp, dude ranch, winter ski trips, special camp just for, for children with brain cancer. Requires very, very, very specialized everything, services, terrain even, where the families actually come to the camp as well. You know, they have a, you know, a camp just siblings of kids with cancer because the siblings are often sort of shunted aside, you know, oh, you're, you're not dying, so you'll be okay, right? All the kids and the families that get to go pay nothing. It's all done through fundraising. And because even though there are tremendous advances every year in, in cancer treatment, it's clear to us that there will always be cancer. So the need is to be able to serve as many kids and their families as we possibly can. So I serve as their general counsel. And during the years that I'm doing that, it involves everything, contract negotiations and making sure that medical teams, policies and procedures are up to, to snuff and that we're complying with the various laws of the various states in which we operate, making sure that the insurance is in good shape, especially the, you know, the medical malpractice insurance and all of that. And watching the organization grow from to where they are now is... Well, it's just significant. I mean, like, you know, fourfold, at least in terms of, you know, in terms of fundraising and, and all of that. It's just, just the most wonderful organization. You can donate at camponestep.org and, uh, and you'll feel really, really good. Watch the videos. <laughs> JCFS is an acronym for Jewish Child and Family Services, which is a mashup of a number of social service agencies that started over 160 years ago, you know, started out like, you know, basically helping um, immigrants from, you know, from Europe, you know, get their feet on the ground. Then they set up orphanages and then they, you know, set up vocational programs and all sorts of things that help uh, families in, in need, whatever those needs are, primarily social service needs, but also, also vocational needs. Now, a client population is substantially intellectual, emotional, and developmental disabilities, not exclusively, but primarily, as well as people who just need psychological counseling but don't have insurance and just this is the only way they're going to get it. Over 400 employees. We run on a low to mid eight-figure budget every year. It's an enormous, it's enormous undertaking. We have over 30 distinct programs, thousands of thousands of client interactions every single year. So I joined the board 
you know, you look at the thousands. I mean, we're talking about tens of thousands of lives that are touched every year by this hardworking staff. And it's been really challenging during the pandemic because, you know, so much of the work that has to be done has to be done face to face, particularly the work that's done with children with uh, developmental disabilities. We have a therapeutic day school. It's really hard to, you know, I mean, that's hard work in normal times, but to keep these kids on track, to keep their structures together, and to keep the families' structures together during a pandemic has been one of the biggest challenges we've ever, we've ever faced. If any of that touches you in the audience, it's jcfs.org. Click the blue button. A donation of any size will be really, really deeply appreciated. Thank you for sharing your involvement in those two wonderful organizations. And just want to thank you, Neil, for sharing your story with us today. Really, really appreciate learning even a little bit more about you than I knew previously, which is always a wonderful thing. But this is what it's about, right? It's telling stories and getting to know people better and learning from, from others, collaborating and all the things that, that you mentioned today. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you two final questions before we end our talk today. One, who is your favorite composer? And two, are you working on any project, any music project now that we can look forward to hearing about sometime in the future? Yes, and yes. Right now, I'm finding myself increasingly, increasingly falling <laughs> deeply in love with Franz Schubert's music. But by no means is, is he the only one, because every, every generation of composer has, has brought something new to the table. But uh, right now, uh, right now, I'm finding Schubert incredibly fascinating. Projects that I'm working on, I'm working on a lot of chamber music. I really like collaborating and working with a number of groups. First of all, I get to play semi-regularly with the Chicago Bar Association Symphony Orchestra. So the Chicago Bar has its own orchestra. That's really, it's really fun. And I've got, had a lot to, you know, had a chance to play a lot of piano concertos with them. So I'm hoping that there will be some more of those in the future. One chamber group that I'm working with is a piano trio, which is piano, violin, and cello. And group, the cellist, is a retired judge, Julia Nowicki. So that's a real, real honor to play with her honor. And in a very, very fine a litigator by the name of Patricia Bronte on violin, we've made a commitment, the three of us, that every program that we perform will include at least one piece by a woman composer and one piece by a composer, basically a, non, <laughs> a non-dead white male <laughs> composer. So there's a lot in our repertoire that we're working on both among living and non-living women composers, uh, Clara Schumann being one, and uh, many others. Also working on, you know, a lot of the standard piano trio repertoire by Mozart, Beethoven, and Dvorak, as well as some of the more modern stuff from the 20th century and even the 21st century. So once we can get out of lockdown, there will be, there will be performances. And I, uh, I hope to see you all in the audience. We look forward to hearing you play. Thank you again for joining us today. Thank you to the audience for joining us today on Much More Than the Law. Look for us next time, and we will see you soon.